The fashion industrial complex and the fashion media industrial complex are these huge global forces that affect millions of people, billions of animals, ecosystems everywhere. And the fashion industry has a very interesting dynamic of being able to be perceived as both innocent and fun, while at the same time being globally impactful. Mm -hmm. So it's dangerous. It's a dangerous combination, if Mm -hmm. not sinister. That's Joshua Catcher, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey guys, my name is Rich Roll. I am your host, and I am on a mission. And that mission is simple, to help you guys live and be better. So to serve this end, I do lots of stuff, all kinds of stuff. But one of those things is this podcast where each week I deliver to your doorstep through your earbuds, long form, in-depth conversations with some of the best and the brightest, the most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds across all categories of life, health, and excellence to help you discover, uncover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. I want to thank everybody for subscribing to the show. I know there's a lot of uh, choices out there when it comes to your precious time and the content choices that you make. So it means a lot to me that you're tuning in right now. Thank you for spreading the word to your friends and to your colleagues and coworkers and for sharing this show on social media. Thank you for subscribing to my newsletter and thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. This means so much to us. So to all of you out there who have made a practice of doing this, we thank you sincerely. Okay. As you know, I like to mix things up here. I like to bring on all kinds of cool guests in a really wide variety of fields of expertise with all kinds of interesting and often provocative perspectives on life, health, business, etc. And this week is just that. I sit down with fashion designer, blogger, and now professor Joshua Ketcher, who unveils a really interesting perspective on the garment industry, which is an industry or a subject matter that we've never really talked about on this podcast before. Uh, It's a peek behind the curtain at exactly how most clothes are manufactured, distributed, and marketed. Uh, And I have to say, it's really quite revealing and at times a little shocking with an amazing number of parallels to the food industry, which, as you know, is a sort of continuous topic of conversation on this podcast. It's really, really interesting. So even if fashion or clothes are not your thing, you have no interest in this whatsoever, maybe you, you know, wear dad jeans, you don't care, uh, please have a little faith in how I curate this show and trust me because this is a really compelling conversation. It's an important conversation, I think, and I think it's uh, a topic that just might surprise you. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this 
heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life 
and recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, I got Joshua Catcher in the house. Who is Joshua? Well, Joshua is the founder and the creative director behind the sustainable, ethically conscious, high-end fashion line called Brave Gentleman. He is also the founder of The Discerning Brute, which is a men's lifestyle website focused on fashion, food, etiquette, and ethics. He's also a public lecturer and adjunct professor of fashion at Parsons The New School, where his research focuses on sustainability and ethics in fashion production. This is a really interesting talk. It's a talk about the intersection of ethics, aesthetics, and fashion, the environmental impact of raising animals for clothing, the advance of more sustainable or ethically manufactured materials for garments, and it's a talk about the truth behind what it really takes to be a successful entrepreneur in the garment industry. Uh, Joshua is highly engaging. He's super intelligent and articulate, and it was really fascinating to gain a little bit of a better understanding on a world I previously knew very little about. It was really revealing. I think this is uh, an important discourse, and my hope is that you'll come away from this conversation a little more enlightened, a little more informed when it comes to aligning your consumerism with your values. So let's walk a mile in Joshua's shoes. You live in Williamsburg, right? I do. I live in Brooklyn. I've been there for uh, over ten years. You've seen uh, you've seen it transform. I have recently. Yes, my family is from Brooklyn. Oh wow! My dad grew up in Bensonhurst. My grandparents lived in Brooklyn all their lives. Uh, they moved upstate a little bit, but then my um, I was raised up a little more in the country, Poughkeepsie. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. people don't think of Poughkeepsie as the country, but yeah. in comparison to... <laughs> in comparison if you grew to up in the boroughs, nice country yeah. town. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, is, it, is a, uh, it is an artery of New York City. You can take the Metro North train. Mm-hmm. I used to, as a teenager, hop on the train and go down to St. Mark's Place and go to hardcore shows and punk rock shows and yeah. look at all the freaks. Well, how, how old? Um, probably from the time I was about... 15 yeah that's yeah. so young like i like times have changed right can you imagine just sending like your 15 year old into manhattan to like cruise around yes yeah you say yes but like the reality of that i don't know like, well you I, always tell your parents something very different than what you're right, actually right. Doing. Well, right right i was right. sent out to the wilderness with no parental yeah, you were supervision. you were the youngest yeah i mean this, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast story <laughs> i'll do that later yeah, i know alaska and, um, the, and the lower east kind side of, had a lot yeah, in common they right? do they actually do a lot of freaks different way <laughs> Did uh, did um, did the garment industry sort of run through your family? I mean, do you come from? Is Are you garmentos? In- yeah, I mean, I didn't know it until recently, but it did. Yeah, the schmata See? trade. Oh. It's uh, my great grandparents were glove makers in Gloversville, New York. Wow, that's great. and that's another. You know, it was the, it was the capital of glove making in North America, 
And obviously that economy bottomed out right. and ha- gone has gone overseas. I didn't, but I didn't know that there could be there was a capital of glove making. It was. Know? I mean, that's why it's called Gloversville. <laughs> yeah, it got named <laughs> got named after the industry. Uh-huh. And I guess naming of cities and towns back then it was very literal. Yeah. What should we call this town? Well, we make, <laughs> that meeting, that town hall meeting. <laughs> we make gloves. So yeah, how so. about Glovers City? No. no. <laughs> it's kind of like the kids making that's choosing the name funny. for the soccer team yeah. not that much thought goes or into like it how your seven-year-old daughter names the dog you know? right. <laughs> how about snowy blizzard you know since we're in yeah. snowpocalypse yeah. right now and you still Glover made it the out dog. Yeah, exactly yeah it's snowing pretty pretty intensely right now it's the first big storm of the season i know so we're gonna pull it's out, cool gonna, that we're here together we're gonna it's pull out of... the uh Toronto bed for you because the subway's gonna be closed <laughs> you're gonna be stuck here i I, I came i <laughs> came <laughs> expecting to be able to get a, like did put up bring, in a hotel one night did you, did you bring your pillow yeah. <laughs> anyway yes you have to it's c- going to come with your pajamas right mm-hmm. well cool right before we started uh uh started recording you were saying that uh, you just wrote um, a response to an op-ed piece, and we were starting to get into it, and I thought maybe we should record this conversation. So what was yeah. that piece? Yeah, there there is a piece written by an editor, a new editor at Stylecaster. And Stylecaster is a website that does a lot of fashion reporting. They're sort of along the lines of WWD, Women's Wear Daily, mm-hmm. which is considered, you know, the the foremost authority mm-hmm. on fashion news. But Stylecaster is a little younger. It's web. It's totally web-oriented. Um, and they do things to get attention like most websites want to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, this editor wrote uh, an article called I, Re- I Wear Real Fur and I'm Not Ashamed. And you mm-hmm. can just tell by the title that that was mm-hmm. intended to get a lot of traffic and get a lot of comments and get people riled up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read it, the tone, the the talking points, it came. It looks like it came right out of a fur industry marketing handbook. Right. Um, so I just read it. I read through it, and you know, here's this influential young woman who's in a powerful position, and that's amazing. Um, but she she goes on to make some very false claims about the fur industry and. Um, and it's really, it, it hurts. It, it impacts lives when, when people make those claims. It makes people feel better. To, mm-hmm. Oh, it's okay. It's okay to buy fur now because, you know, this one editor right. went to a, a marketing website and read their talking points. Well, what is it that's, that, what were these points that she was purporting that are false? Well, that that might be, you know, that maybe you could disabuse, you know, people's ideas of how that, how that business functions. You know, she, she poses one of the classic uh, concepts, which is I, I now eat meat. So why should I care about fur? Why, why is it okay to be contradictory? And I think that that is a huge problem overall. Like no, none of us can be perfect. None of us are pure. And mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. that that's what any social justice movement is about. It's not about being perfect and pure for yourself. It's about being effective and bringing about change. And when I was three, my mom told me two wrongs don't make a right. So mm-hmm. I think that that's still... Just listen to your mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my mom my mom pretty much had it down. Two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you're going to you know, now choose to eat a steak doesn't mean it's also okay to confine an animal for its entire life in a tiny cage and then you know, kill it in a horrible way and mm-hmm. just for something as frivolous as a, an accessory. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, but there's this idea that if, you know, if I'm not perfect already, why, why bother doing anything else? Right. Well, I, why, bo- why bother leaving your apartment? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Why, why not just, you know, co- commit all of the horrible acts that I can because I, because I'm doing <laughs> right, one thing. Because you already thing. did it. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm already going to hell, I may as well have fun. I think that's kind of yeah. the attitude. Mm-hmm. But there's something beneath that. And I think that what she really is attracted to is the symbol of fur and fur still symbolizes power and sex mm-hmm. and luxury and class and all of these things that we really desire in this culture. The history is pretty fascinating, right? It Going is back a, to like Henry VIII and Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I think, I think it was went before that. Edward the <laughs> Third. Well, he mm-hmm. he made these sumptuary laws which basically made fur a status symbol by law. So if you were only if you were noble or you know in a, a royal could you wear most of the kinds of fur especially something like ermine mm-hmm. when you see a picture of a king or queen from that from the middle ages and you see those those white furs with the little tufts of black coming out of it it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a trope that we see when we see royalty represented mm-hmm. that's ermine it takes hundreds of ermine they're little creatures to make one garment so furs like that only you know you could be you could be arrested you could be put to death if you were a commoner who wore fur. So these laws lasted for hundreds of years. And you have generation after generation of people believing that only the very most powerful people wear fur. Mm -hmm. And I think we still can see the ramifications of that today. It creates an entrenched system in which uh, it's just understood that if you're wearing this garment, that that what comes with that is a, a, you know, a sense of status and, and luxury and Mm -hmm. all of these things that we associate as aspirational in our culture. Absolutely. And it's such a, it's such an interesting garment to try to analyze from a sociological standpoint, from a historical standpoint, and from a psychological standpoint, because I think what happens is that fur, because we know now how it's made, most people know, instead of it turning us off to it, it becomes a transgressive, naughty indulgence. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's cruel almost makes it more desirable. And that's some psychological acrobatics that is a little difficult to wrap your head around. But when you look at our culture from from the standpoint of cuisine and the standpoint of a lot of other things, we gravitate towards things that were the crueler, the more gruesome, the more enjoyable it's it's believed to be. Mm -hmm. Like the baby veal. Yeah, Yeah, foie gras or like an exotic indulgence. Yeah, it's this idea that because it was so terrible, it must really be amazing. The, The payoff has to be equally, you know, as heightened as, as, as the production was gruesome. Mm-hmm. And there's a, I think there's a practice in France that's still um, done under, you know, behind closed doors at, at certain restaurants and people will hide their head under a veil when they're eating this because of the shame. Mm-hmm. But it's also a status symbol to be eating under the veil. And it's, it's basically a bird that's soaked in, uh, in some form of liquor and then set ablaze alive. And then you eat it after it's burned to death. And I don't remember the exact name, what this is, but I think that's sort of along the same lines when we talk about fur and we talk about right. veal and we talk and about foie there, There's the monkey brain thing too, right? I don't know where exactly that is. Somewhere it's in, in the Asia east. Where they, yeah, they, yeah, you crack the skull open. Mm-hmm. It's While like the in the middle alive. of the table. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I saw, I remember watching... When I was in high school, like Faces of Death. Faces of Death. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they did. That was the that, documentary right? that actually started have me thinking about animal sentience. Oh, really? And, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I was in an after-school club called Swift, 
students with ideas for I tomorrow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, let's get you ready for the World Fair with that. And it look was, at how well it, it impacted you. I guess I was. It worked. I was there just because I had friends that were in it. I really didn't, I wasn't somebody who, who cared that much about um, world events or issues. I didn't see myself as even a, a valid person to be addressing issues. I, I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm sort of just in the background. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to just float through life and I'm not a decision maker. And, um, I think that that was a very formative year for me when I, when I joined that club and I saw that video and I started, it just, it was the first time in my life that I thought that the adults weren't right. I was like, Oh, maybe they're not doing things right. (laughs) Maybe, maybe they don't have all their shit together. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a weird moment of loss of innocence, you know, yeah. as you grow up, because you just assume like your parents know everything and mm-hmm. adults have everything figured out. And then <laughs> you get older. The and rude you become, awakening. Yeah. Like <laughs> even down to, you know, like I was looking on your website before the thing, too, and you're talking about you're sort of doing a, a, a FAQ question and answer. Like, don't I need me to be healthy? And yeah. then you have your answer. And it's like, well, ask, you know, be, my doctor told me I needed meat. And you're saying, well, doctors only get like three or four hours of nutrition education throughout medical school. Yeah. That's like asking your dentist to fix your computer. You know, <laughs> like the idea, like the idea that like, you know, you, this, this is an adult actually who probably should know something about this. And then to yeah. find out actually they don't know that much. They were never really specifically trained in it. That is, you know, a, we, an awakening moment. And to know that the, the world kind of functions that way is very disconcerting. We're trained from the time we're children to hand over authority to all of these figures who supposedly know what's going on. And, and, and we're told you're not, you know, you're not the person who should know about this or who can solve these problems. There are experts there for that. And if you want to become an expert, you have to do X, Y, Z and get all of these certifications and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really intimidating for young people. And a lot of them become apathetic because they say, why, you know, how am I ever going to have influence? I don't have the money to get a PhD. I don't, I'm not going to, become a, a senator you know these are people who were born into it essentially this is a this is almost a, an oligarchy in that sense so we, you have this huge portion of citizens who just feel disempowered and they feel that their voice is not um valid for for making decisions like that and we turn to doctors and we turn to mm-hmm. supposed experts and often they're just like you and me and mm-hmm. they read books and they got a title and now they're telling you what to do and you can read books and and find things right. out for yourself. But I think that's changing. You know, I think that the internet has democratized that process a little bit. And I think the younger generation uh, kind of implicitly understands that that there is, that the possibility exists for them to have influence. I mean, you just see it, you know, on a base level, just with the rise of whatever the newest Instagram star is or whatever, that somebody could come yeah. f- with basically zero qualifications and have a huge impact on culture. Yeah. <laughs> I know? agree. Like, I think that there is a, a f- there is some democratization that's happened because of that, but I also think it gets reduced to the lowest common denominator yes, when it comes sure. to people who for sure. end up having the largest following. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's another All right, so so you're, you're this, you know, uh, enterprising young man in Swift, and you watch Faces of Death. And yeah, you so see, you see monkeys' brains being God. eaten, and yeah, it was now, a horrible. I'm getting a picture now of your of your younger formative uh, years. Yeah, I mean, right? I was I, when I was 15. I was in high school in in upstate New York, and I was you know into skateboarding and punk rock music and grunge and just 
living my life, playing guitar in my bedroom by myself <laughs> and reading comic <laughs> yeah. books. And, um, and then, uh, I, I had this experience. It shifted everything. And I, I remember people telling me that I had lost my sense of humor for a little while. I, I was always very silly and very jokey and, my parents noticed and my friends and family noticed that after, after that experience, I just got very serious mm. and I, I sort of internalized this idea that, uh, there are these huge problems, these huge environmental, ethical, social problems that are not being dealt with. And not only aren't they being dealt with, they're being worsened. And what, as I become an adult, what am I supposed to do about this? How can I affect the change and, and try to try to help? Mm-hmm. And everybody at every step of the way wants to stop you. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. Why bother? You're you're never going to change anything. You're just you know you're just one person. And so does that does that energize you, or do you then go out and buy a trench coat and kind of hang your head low and brood? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I think the trench coat and brooding can be an aesthetic argument <laughs> that can help enhance yes. your effectiveness. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a great segue into the power that fashion has. Because exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm sorry, go no, ahead. I mean, when you appear to be an enigma, when you appear to be mysterious, when you appear to um, command attention through your aesthetics, it, it really, in this culture today, heightens your influence. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of activists underestimate that. I think we like to throw out the laundry with the bath with the wash water mm-hmm. when we look at fashion. We think fashion is something that's just frivolous. Um, it's just about you know having fun and finding great deals and going shopping. Meanwhile, the fashion industrial complex and the fashion media industrial complex are these huge global forces that affect millions of people, billions of animals, ecosystems everywhere, and the fashion industry has a very interesting dynamic of being able to be perceived as both innocent and fun while at the same time being globally impactful. Mm -hmm. So it's dangerous. It's a dangerous combination, if Mm -hmm. not sinister. Mm -hmm. Dangerous in the sense that the general person doesn't really consider it or take it seriously and consider, you know, sort of perceives it as, well, you know, then you don't really look look at it and 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 consider the process of you know how that shirt you're wearing you yeah. know, came to the store, and in that respect, it, it bears a lot of similarities to big food companies and, exactly. and the industrial system that produces our food. Mm-hmm. But because we're putting it inside of our body as opposed to on top of our skin, we're more inclined to maybe consider that a little bit more intelligently or deeply. Yeah, there's still of course, you know, close to zero transparency there. But when compared to fashion, it's even more so. Yeah. Yeah. To understand that it is this massive business. Yeah. And I would argue that the the shirt that you put on your back is of equal importance to the food that you're putting in your mouth. And even if you're, even if you're just concerned with health, your skin is an organ and it absorbs, it absorbs the things that you come in contact with. And if Mm -hmm. you're wearing a conventional cotton shirt that took several pounds of pesticides to make mm-hmm. some of that ends up in your skin mm-hmm. so whether or not you're ingesting it is is really there's no big difference mm-hmm. if you're sleeping on it at night if you have your head resting on a pillow every night all night and that pillow is you know contaminated which a lot are yes um then that is going to have a health impact on you so i think there's a prejudice against considering things that aren't entering our bodies 
And that needs to shift. Yeah. And I also think there's another really uh, impactful component of it. And that is the, the demands of the population for garment companies to provide clothes at a certain price level. Yes. It's like a voracious, it's almost an entitlement. It is like, an entitlement. I deserve this garment and I don't want to pay for it. I don't yes. want to pay very much for it. And having been a garment designer and manufacturer, um, uh, if, if anybody understood just how many subcontractors touched that shirt that's mm-hmm. sitting on the back of Rich's chair, they would not believe it. And this demand is, is causing negative consequences to our planet, to our children, to all kinds of people that, that are involved in these industries. And we don't even think a second thing about it. No one has a clue what that, happens. That's why I wanted to start teaching. I, I began teaching at Parsons last year. Mm-hmm. And I'm in going into my second semester. I'm actually having a snow day tomorrow on mm-hmm. my first day of class. Congratulations! <laughs> Thanks. Um, that's so disappointing, though, because it's your first day. Right? <laughs> you're excited. First day of the semester. I can right. email the students and still, you know, give them homework. I'm sure they'll be thrilled uh-huh. about that. But um, I, I teach two classes. One is called Fashion and Culture, and one is called Fashion and the Narrative. And in both of those classes, we deal a lot with what you are talking about. This mm-hmm. idea that there is this. When we look at a product, a fashion object, usually we judge it based on whether it's attractive or not. Mm. And that is what's called aesthetic irrationality, where we say this is pretty, therefore it's good. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's a good, not an evil. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean evil in a religious sense. I mean in a societal sense of causing great harm or damage. And the process is rarely as beautiful as the finished product. Mm-hmm. And I think that in order for a fashion object to be truly handsome or truly mm-hmm. attractive and beautiful, the production has to be equally attractive. And that is not the case in 99% of the fashion industry right now. Yes. And there is this history behind every garment that if you trace it back step by step, whose hands touched it, who, mm-hmm. where it came from, where it was grown, most people don't know that one of the top... Um, causes of child slavery in the world are the cotton fields in Uzbekistan where children are basically trapped in perpetual debt. They have to, they have to get these bags to pick the cotton and most of them can't afford the bags. They're taken out of school or they go to school and their teachers bring them to the fields to work, which is a real travesty. And they are given these bags that they have to repay, but they're not, they never make enough money to repay it after their expenses at the end of each day. So they're perpetually in debt. Mm. They're picking mm. cotton. These are children. These are, you know, from, from probably from six years old to, to teenagers. And that is where conventional cotton comes from. And Uzbekistan is the second leading producer in the world. So yeah, I mean, that's I, just one example. I would have, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that. I would have never known that. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but I do know that you know there's a reason why t-shirts at old navy cost you know three dollars whatever they cost you know so but but there's this disconnect and there's this dissonance right like i intellectually understand like well the reason this stuff is so cheap is because probably you know probably wasn't such a great you know setup to get this stuff here but 
whatever, it's cheap, you know, I'm going to yeah, get it. It's convenient. I don't think about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? In the same way that you can have that same relationship with the food that you're buying at the grocery store. Yeah. So, and, and it's problematic because we, we live in a society where almost everything that we have a relationship with is like that. We mm -hmm. just put faith in the producers and the makers. Mm -hmm. And we say to ourselves, if it was really that bad, they wouldn't be doing it. And I think that we say that far too often to ourselves. And they say, well, if they didn't want it this way, they wouldn't buy it. Exactly. Yeah. And so, it becomes this allowance. We allow each other to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it comes too to the, the whole, you know, our whole uh, kind of uh, addiction to excess. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're going to go in and we're going to, we find a shirt. We're not going to buy one. Let's buy 15. Let's buy five in every color, you mm -hmm. know, and... If, you know, I, I remember when I was uh, living in France and I traveled to Italy for the first time and it was this hilarious thing because it was, you know, in the 80s and, you know, there were some quite extraordinary uh, Michael Jackson-esque Jackson kind of flange shoulder outfits <laughs> that would show up in yeah. Rome and, you know, really catch your eye and be like, whoa, look at that person's getup. And then literally uh, the next day you'd see them in the exact same outfit. And the next day, you'd see them in the exact yeah. same outfit. And suddenly, I started to realize the European mentality is you don't buy 50 things. You buy one thing. You might spend like a 1000 bucks or right. 3000 bucks, but you're going to plan. You're going to plan your thing, right? Yeah. And you're going to invest in it. And you're going to actually own that for a long, right. more of a long Long, it's more of a long view. It's I a guess. commitment. It's, it's a, a relationship. It's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And and I think people are frightened of their identities now. And part of the problem of fast fashion, very much like fast food, where you know you go to Forever Twenty One and you spend three dollars on a shirt and then it falls apart the next week and you go buy another one. Mm -hmm. This idea of constantly, perpetually being able to change your identity and how you're perceived, I think, is very sought after. This fluid, fluid identity. And when you buy. If you save up and invest in one piece that was made fairly or made sustainably, um, that's a that's a that's scary to some people because then they say, mm -hmm. "Oh, this is how I'm going to be seen for quite a while." Right? Do they're they they're frightened themselves? of committing to their, <laughs> their, their yeah. possession because everything is so well. Because it, you know, and it's fueled by the fact that everything is so cheap right now, mm -hmm. so it's just disposable. I mean, when we were kids, it was like. You know, once a year, I'd go, my mom would take me and we'd get the tough skins and that was it, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. But now it's like, hey, oh, oh, whatever, we'll just go get more. Like, it's like going to the grocery because it's so cheap. And everybody, there's a desire, especially in young people now, to be able to visually articulate all of these different personas that, oh, I'm today I'm going to be mm -hmm. punk, tomorrow I'm going to be goth, the next day I'm going to be, you know, preppy. And... That those identities back in, you know, earlier, at least in the earlier 20th century, um, those were more stable. Yeah, I once you picked one, you, yeah, you, you were, were in that lane you for were a punk, while. You were punk, you were punk. And you wore the same jacket that you had every day and you would embellish it yourself. And if you, you know, if you were preppy, then that, then that was it. But now it seems like all these all of these looks are so available and so easily accessed and that you don't really have to put any work into doing mm -hmm. it. Um, 
it's very confusing from an identity standpoint. And I think we all are going through this identity crisis. But I think it also fuels the confusion. And I know that, you know, I've, I've been hired myself to go into different clients' homes and actually clean their closet out. And they own so much stuff and they don't know who they are and they can't find themselves. And mm. I'm like, get rid of all this stuff. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, get clear. So I think that it feeds the problem. It makes them more confused. So mm-hmm. I don't see us really finding ourselves or finding an expression or an artistic expression that is in alignment with, you know, the true core of an individual Right. that's that often. And it, it is something that's very part of the human experience to be able to visually represent yourself, to be able to decorate your body, mm-hmm. to be able to, uh, I mean, you can look at minimally contacted peoples that are still um, living today um, that, you know, they do that. And I feel like as a species, we, we have had a connection to being able to somewhat adjust our aesthetic appearance for whether it was for ceremonial purposes or for, Mm -hmm. or for personal, you know, personal identity, Mm -hmm. um, to signify, you know, who you are and, Mm -hmm. and what you believe. Um, and I just think that, it's important to, to not write that off entirely. I think there's a lot of people who are, they believe they're anti-fashion. They believe mm-hmm. that they are against this idea of, uh, of having an aesthetic representation of yourself, that somehow aesthetics are subordinate to other forms of experience. Right, or not as pure. Or yeah. that, mm-hmm. that, that being concerned about aesthetics is somehow a base desire that, yeah. is, mm-hmm. that is, you know, kind of a lower interest. And, yes. you know, somebody who is a true intellectual wouldn't be bothered with something like that. But it's, 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 it's wed into the fabric of our DNA and who we are as human beings. And I think to deny that is to deny an aspect of what it means to be human and how you express yourself. And, right. you know, what you put on is a choice, you know, whether, you know, if, whether it's you're declaring it to be anti-fashion, that in and of itself is a fashion choice. Right? Exactly. I mean, even if you're, and, even if you're a nudist, <clears throat> that's a choice to right. not wear clothing. Yeah, exactly. It's still a choice. And the fluidity of, of those choices, particularly with younger people, I think goes hand in hand with the acceleration of technology and social media and all of this, you know, all of these things go together. And when you were talking about kind of the deep psychological black hole of making that like naughty choice and kind yeah. of probing what that means. I mean, you can reflect that back on this, this fluidity and, and what does that say about these people who, who are having difficulty making that choice is yeah. it because they want to, I mean, look, you know, is it out of fear? They want to be loved. They want to be accepted in whatever group they are. And when everyone in their, in these groups is always changing too, and that creates confusion and, mm. you know, this goes way beyond. And there's a lot of confusion around the idea of what sin is. And I think that when we look at our religious history, the idea of sin, all of these transgressions, some of them were very pleasurable and some of them were not. Um, sins like, you know, sexuality or um, materialism or, you know, gluttony, these things are, these things can be enjoyable from uh, from a physical experience standpoint. And I think there's a lot of confusion around this idea of sin means that it's going to be enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Sin, so therefore, when you sin by buying a fur coat or you sin by purchasing, you know, the, the foie gras platter, um, even though you know that it's wrong, you almost celebrate that it's wrong because you know that the payoff is going to be so great that mm-hmm. that this is a sin and therefore it's going to be pleasurable. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is where a lot of activists lose sight of how to address 
the problem where we we believe that if we maintain the idea that this uh, that being good being a do gooder is going to convince people to make the right choice i think we're fooling ourselves Mm-mm. because being a do gooder is seen as boring boring right you have to make a badass pair of shoes you know and they <laughs> so, have to look really fucking good exactly you know and then people will fall into line it comes down to design you have to make superior design and this is what's so exciting about what's happening i think in the vegan community right now all of the most exciting innovations in cuisine and textiles and fashion are happening in the realms of organic plant-based high-tech synthetics um even even stuff i just went to the biofabricate conference which was held um in in new york city right not too far from this hotel and at the biofabricate conference there are innovations happening that are blowing my mind i mean we're we're growing leather in the laboratory we're we're able to grow i think a, a scientist at duke just 2 days ago announced that he was able to grow muscle that contracted in the laboratory, we are That's on bizarre. we are on the <laughs> yeah. we're on the verge of being able to use synthetic biology to replace all animal products, but have identical animal products that aren't mm-hmm. attached to living animals. Mm-hmm. So these industries know what's happening: the fur industry, the leather industry, the meat industry, and they don't know what to do. Either they're going to have to invest in these things themselves and shift over, or they're going to be they're going to be steamrolled. Right, and and the the analogy in the food context is what's happening with Beyond Meat and Hampton Creek mm-hmm. and the Unilever uh, lawsuit, you know, which is basically the mayonnaise business yeah. panicking because Hampton Creek's creating a, a healthier, cheaper Mayo. alternative. Yes. You know what I mean? So in the synthetics uh, context, the same, there's a parallel track happening right here, yeah. and it's you know, and the and, and what what kind of um, those guys say, whether it's Ethan Brown or, uh, you know, Josh Tetrick, it's like the animal protein is an antiquated technology. It's wasteful. It is. It's not sustainable. It requires a ridiculous amount of resources, and it just doesn't work anymore. It's bad design, it's period. It's equally applicable to the clothes that we're wearing. Yeah, it's just bad design. People that still are – people that insist upon – Leather, wool, and fur being the epitome of quality and fashion, it's just, it's wrong. It's bad design. It's inefficient. It's clunky. It requires, it's such a slow process to raise animals. You know, imagine, here we have this, uh, a hair fiber that we use, but it's attached to this being that needs to be born and raised and grow up and and it has space and feed and water water and, and it has a huge impact. And I think wool is one of the most <laughs> overlooked environmental problems. When I look at my my contemporary sustainable designers, mm-hmm. and they all are crazy about wool, they, because the hair itself, yeah, it's it's great. It's biodegradable. It, you know, Mother Nature designed it wonderfully to right. uh, <laughs> to wick away moisture and do all these high performance things. However, it's attached to a to a being that has a huge environmental impact. Mm-hmm. And Australia and New Zealand, the world's leading producers of wool, mm-hmm. um, their number one cause of greenhouse gas emissions are sheep. Wow. And Right. The numbers, I was looking on your website, you recounted some of these numbers. They're astonishing, right? It's, it's, it's like 50% blowing. of the greenhouse gas emissions in New Zealand is caused by the wool industry, or yeah. just the sheep farmer. Yeah. And if it's not exactly 50%, it is immensely significant. Um, and the leather industry also, it, it, people don't realize 
we look at the final product and we judge that. We don't look at the process, and that's, mm-hmm. pro- that's very problematic. And what about the brutality in some of these sharing, uh, you know, warehouses? It's it's horrible. Imagine that you were a person who had to shave a struggling, large, strong animal mm-hmm. day in and day out all mm-hmm. day long. These animals don't want to be pinned down. They're prey animals. They they experience extreme fear in being turned over on their backs. And in shearing operations, they have to be, you know, sheared from many different directions and quickly. And these are not calm animals that just sit down and get a haircut and it's and it's a friendly right. thing and they walk away. They have to be tied down. And when they don't cooperate, they're beaten and they're yes. hit and they're slammed against the floor. And yes. undercover investigations very recently have shown that in high volume wool production facilities mm-hmm. and shearing operations, animals are being, their skin is being sheared off. They're yes. struggling. They're being cut. And when they're cut, they, if they aren't left to die, they're stitched up with no anesthesia right mm-hmm. there on the spot. And, and then at the end of this whole process, of this whole, you know, wool, uh, wool production process, when the sheep is considered spent, when they're not producing as much wool as they should, they're packed onto these sh- giant ships, like cruise ships. They're actually designed after slave ships. And they're sent to the Middle East on a sometimes many week long journey through the ocean with no veterinary care, no water, no food. And they arrive only to be slaughtered for halal meat if they survive the journey. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading some veterinary reports about what happened on some of those ships, the animals at the very bottom layer all of the feces comes down into the bottom and you have animals arriving up to their heads and shit. And, and you know, and it's a corrosive substance. They, so this is, this is such, and this is all for a fiber that we can grow in the laboratory. Why on earth would we still be Mm -hmm. doing this to these living beings when we have so many alternatives and, and the opportunity for innovation is just beyond. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are underestimating the potential in our design students. When we mm-hmm. when we look at fashion schools and we keep telling the students, you know, if you design menswear, you must use cashmere, you must use wool, you must use leather. And we're not giving them the opportunities or the financial incentives right. to be able to find other things. And the fur industry is giving them financial incentives to use fur. Why aren't there people mm-hmm. out there giving designers incentives to use sustainable materials? Right. There's two people doing it. And it's not enough. Stella McCartney's one. She yes. has a scholarship. Yes. And John Bartlett, right? Um, I don't know if John Bartlett does it, but he 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 does amazing work well, he's speaking very at schools. And he's, yeah. yeah, very. Uh-huh. He's very active. But Bruno Peters um, is another designer, uh, very accomplished designer, and he has um, a fund for students that they can apply to, where they would win ten thousand euros for agreeing to use ethical materials and exploring that world. That's amazing. And at Parsons, I'm very active in trying to get a partnership um, going with some of the uh, synthetic biology laboratories here in New York, like Gen Labs, to get students thinking about how to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Uh, a couple observations. I mean, first of all, like I'm the first to admit that you know, my entry point into the vegan world, the plant-based world, was definitely through the prism of health. Right. And, uh, 
but you know, as these things go, when you embark on this journey, uh, the road gets narrower and the vision expands. You know, so there's this this you know thing that happens where you start to you take the blue pill in the matrix and yeah. you start to really take a look at how the world functions and how certain things operate. And it was inevitable before uh, you know it came time to really consider my consumer choices beyond the plate. And that's been a more recent thing for me, in all honesty, you know, and, and, you know, I was definitely a guy walking around thinking, well, what's the big deal with wool? Like, they're just giving these animals a haircut, you know, like they're living nice lives out and whatever. And I saw that video not that long ago that was going around where it literally showed this, you know, these people just beating these animals up and shearing them really quickly and they're bleeding everywhere and they're punching them in the head. And like, Mm -hmm. I had no idea, you know, and it really made me think about it's, what is actually going on. It's a painful realization and it's something that we we avoid having to realize and it's not it's understandable why these aren't the most popular ideas because mm-hmm. they're they're painful and they require a shift. Well, because if you really consider them then you have to consider your own choices and that requires behavior change and yeah. people don't like that. They yeah. want to be told that what they're doing is just <laughs> fine and whatever bad habit they're they're yeah. per, you know perpetuating that they should just continue to do so and you know, yeah. go home and watch Dancing with the Stars. There's a, there's a movie that I show in my class or an excerpt from a movie. I don't know if you remember it. It was a horror film from the 80s that is, a, is an underrated classic. It's called, um, uh, oh, why can't I remember the name now? It's, part, <laughs> it's on your curriculum? It's, it's, on, it's part of my <laughs> curriculum and I don't remember the name. They Live. Uh-huh. They Live. Do you remember this? That. No. So They Live was... Um, it was a film about this guy, uh, John, and he, he's sort of a vagabond worker. He just wanders around and finds random jobs. And he comes across these glasses, these sunglasses, stored away, hidden behind a wall in a church. And he puts them on. And when he puts them on, the, he sees through the ideology of the culture. He mm. sees what things for how they really are. So when he looks at an advertisement up on a billboard, instead of it, you know, being this sexy woman laying down on a beach with a bottle of vodka, it says procreate. Mm-hmm. And when he looks at another ad, it just says obey. And he looks at money and it says, this is your God. So when he's wearing these glasses, the, the truth is revealed about how things are. And there's this alien element where, you know, all of these evil aliens have taken over control of the world. <laughs> and when he's wearing the glasses, he can see who they are. And they're all people in powerful positions. Mm. So they're controlling the world like through these reptilian <laughs> energies. Exactly. Well, yeah, that sounds prophetic. I'd like to know who the person is who thought of that, because that's an advanced consciousness. So you should check out that film. Yeah. If, if you're a fan of horror and you're also a fan of, you know, <laughs> smart films, it, uh-huh. you know, it, I think it was, it's very similar to the matrix where the, the, the sunglasses are are that pill right and he has a fight with his best friend where he you know he battles him to try to get him to convince him to put on the glasses and it's really hard for his friend to accept them and they you know it's this really long ridiculous fight scene and he finally puts them on but i think that um it just shows how how re- how we resist seeing the truth mm-hmm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What else is on your uh, curriculum? Like, what do you, what do you, you know, what are you professoring on to your um, students? I just put together the class reader for uh, the fashion and culture class, and we're touching on a bunch of different stuff. Uh, some of the things I'm excited to share with the students are a chapter from Tansy Hoskins' book called Unstitched. It's an anti-capitalist mm-hmm. fashion handbook. That's the name of it. 
um, she really takes a hard look at the way the fashion system operates, uh, how it affects people, how it affects the environment, how it affects animals, and, and how it affects us as consumers. And that word consumer, being a consumer, it's mm-hmm. just so weird. Mm-hmm. We're not considered citizens anymore. We're right. considered consumers. And I, think, <laughs> I would much rather be you know, a citizen investor who like, puts his money into companies that he believes in than just somebody who passively consumes things. Mm-hmm. Right. Your job is to you know, consume. Yeah. yeah, that's it. <laughs> Ingest. Yeah. Yes. But we, you shall not have a say in what's happening. Your no. job is to just... Well, it has the kind of the connotation that something's been programmed, like that you're a robot, you mm-hmm. know, right? And so then you're being sort of manipulated Yeah, because you're the consumer. Or it's, it also provides this illusion that everything is taken care of and you don't need to worry. You just need to sit back mm-hmm. and like let Consume. things come to you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, do what you do what you need to do to make the money so that you can go spend it. Exactly. Right. And that is your job. Yeah. And then when you spend this money and you accumulate these things and you still don't find happiness, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I think that's well, part you of need to go back to the mall, get more. You didn't get more. the right thing. <laughs> yes. That's called that's affluenza, right? right? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. right. No, but I mean, getting, I just don't want to get totally off this talk, topic before I discuss this with you, but I wanted to ask you because when I was, let's see, in 1996, which was a long time ago, I, I was using a lot of faux fur and faux leathers yeah. out of Germany Yeah, and I would pay completely insane prices. Uh-huh. It made no sense to my bottom line, but I was very inspired about them. Um, and I wasn't a vegan at the time and you don't know much about me, but I came, I come from Alaska. So my dad was a hunter. So mm-hmm. I grew up in a very sort of extreme environment for right. a yogi, you know, sort of meditator type person. So, but I was using these beautiful, uh, I loved, um, always loved going to the France, um, fabric show. Yeah. And, um, I mean, the most beautiful, beautiful, um, you know, display of amazing fabrics. And they already back then had an extraordinary, um, you know, arsenal of amazing, just amazing furs. You couldn't tell the difference. They were exquisite in every way. So tell me now what's going on in the market and what, who's producing these. And I don't believe that much of it is produced domestically, but has that changed? Is it being produced domestically It would be wonderful if it was, because I would save a lot of money in my designs. I'm buying, I'm buying materials from Europe and Europe is at the forefront of innovation when it comes to materials. Mm -hmm. I refer to them as future leather, future fur, Mm -hmm future wool. Uh, I think that using terms like faux and fake um, are a little detrimental to uh, to how it's perceived. I think people who buy a luxury item, they want, they want what's considered real. Mm-hmm. And I think that the problem, one of the problems we run into is that fur, the fur industry and the leather industry get to say, we're authentic, we're real, everyone else is a faker. And, I mm-hmm. and I think that that's problematic. So I, I, these materials are superior. They're superior to leather. They're superior to fur mm-hmm. in many, many ways. And there's no reason we shouldn't refer to them in that way. Super, they're mm-hmm. superior leather. They're superior fur. Um, in the sense that they are, for example, they're more supple. They wear better. They like. Is that what you mean by superior, a, or I just mean, in terms of the the sort of cost of production and the sustainability? It's aspect. a little bit of everything, and and part of that is the idea that it isn't set in stone. That there's there's always potential to progress. That's great. That's what's great about technology and uh, and synthetics is that we have we have come such a long way with what we're able to create, mm. and. Now, when you look at, for example, 
scientists in Norway who are developing um, who are developing textiles for the coldest climates on the face of the earth for explorers for um, you know Arctic oil rig workers for um, for ice scientists they are not using fur they're not using wool they're using high tech high tech synthetics mm-hmm. this is these are the what we can do now what we can program into textiles to be reactive to have smart polymers that know what your body's doing and how how to respond to open up to let out to let out heat to close up to prevent heat from escaping mm-hmm. um the technologies are are incredible so they're the idea that somehow the the pelt of an animal the chemically preserved pelt of an animal is going to be superior to our innovations is just marketing it's just fluff mm-hmm. and but the the types of faux fur that we're seeing today the types of future fur we're seeing today um they're becoming more customizable they can do things that you know you can't do domesticating animals um and with with the future leather that i'm using from italy it you know i'm the boots that i'm wearing i wore here you know through the snow mm-hmm. i've worn them through almost three new york city winters they break in, they breathe, they're durable, they shape to your foot. They do everything you would want leather to do, except they didn't have as huge of an impact as raising cattle did. So there's a lot of fear in, in these traditional industries, these uh, animal-based industries, about what's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in their interest to try to smear uh, the, the faux products. Right. So they you know they refer to them as oh it's a it's a petroleum based product it's terrible for the environment it's it's this it's that it's toxic um but they forget <laughs> they forget to mention also how their industry uses mm-hmm. incredible amounts of petroleum products and chemical processes right. and when you talk about an animal skin mm-hmm. this is something that nature designed to decompose this is something that when the animal dies you know nature designed it to to biodegrade and go back into the soil um and when you preserve it, you need to use a toxic soup of chemicals to prevent it from doing what it was designed to do. Mm-hmm. And the, those chemicals appear. There was just a study done in Italy on children's clothing. You know, we're poisoning our children with this stuff on fur-lined children's clothing that it contained uh, carcinogenic chemicals like chrome and and heavy salts and um, just really, really disturbing stuff. These are not natural products, but the marketers want you to believe it's natural right. because the fur off of an animal's back is natural. So they say, oh, this is a renewable resource. It's natural. It la-. You know, they have this really interesting contradiction where they say it's biodegradable, but it lasts far longer than everything else. So it's, you know, it's going to, it's going to last, <laughs> like, wait. Yeah. Uh-huh. it's going to last you 30 years with this code. And it's also biodegradable. It's like, wait, you can't have both things. Right. Like which, which is it? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you have a fur coat, it has to be refrigerated. It has to, in the hot weather, so it doesn't rot off your back. It has to be checked for infestations that, you know, this idea of the fur vaults at the big department stores where you bring your fur coat to be refrigerated in the summer. I mean, most people have air conditioning now, so they don't need that anymore, right. mm-hmm. but Fur coats and hot weather, not a good, you know, very smelly. Or in the rain, very smelly. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If, like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. 
It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You know, anybody who really understands the production process, we're all compassionate by nature, right? It's just, I think it's a matter of whether we're willing to kind of look at this and and evaluate it. And, you know, the, the decision not to look at it goes back to the unwillingness to entertain the possibility of behavior change. But yeah. is it, you know, is it getting better? Like, how is it in the industry, you know, with what you're doing? How are you perceived? How are, are, are you, are you met with a lot of, resistance or are you welcomed as this is you know this is where the business is heading it's a little confusing actually you know in the 90s it was very popular to be Mm anti-fur and that changed we're looking at an industry that's reporting higher fur sales than ever before at a higher price than ever before i would not have thought that that's that's interesting it's very and it has a lot to do with the chinese market it has a lot to do with Mm. the um the the rise of the upper middle class in China and the desire for luxury status symbols like handbags and mm-hmm. like fur coats um, on an international level. But even even the United States reported higher fur sales than uh, in a very for, than a very long time, and it's because a mark you know it's effective marketing that the the fur industry has a lot of money. It's one of the most marked up products on you know out there when you look at the the cost of a luxury fur coat versus how much it costs to make it's marked up so so high Mm -hmm. so they end up with all this extra money to be able to market and what they do with what the new york times exposed them as doing is going to fashion schools approaching young designers offering incentives for them to use fur they you know they'll they'll go to the pharmaceutical industry or the tobacco industry and they have lobbyists they they do they do everything that every other industry you would imagine does to get you know to get Mm. their product seen they do that 
and they have a big budget to do it. So they'll approach a young designer like Philip. Uh, well, I shouldn't mention any names. <laughs> they'll approach <laughs> young designers um, who who are offered trips to Europe to go train in Copenhagen to be, you know, to learn the techniques and they're wined and dined and they're given free product to put in their senior shows and to fill the runway. And mm. who's going to say no to that? Mm. If you're a young struggling designer and you have right, this opportunity exactly. to get ahead, of course, you're going to say yes to money. Of course, you're going to say yes to free luxury materials. Mm -hmm. So again, what we come back to is this idea that we need, we need incentives for students to also use these superior materials that are ethical and that doesn't exist yet really on a large scale yes interesting um to get back to the timeline so you know how do you make this leap from you know enterprising syracuse student <laughs> to to getting interested in kind of pursuing this as a vocation you know first with the blog and then later yeah. with the line it was almost by accident i went to school uh, i went to, to college in syracuse and i studied video art I have a BFA in video art, and I, I also, uh, on the same campus as SUNY ESF, which is an mm -hmm. environmental science and forestry school, and I was allowed to take classes there, so I had an unofficial minor in environmental studies. And I always wanted to combine the environmental with the video, and I said, oh, I'm going to become a documentary filmmaker, I'm going to make movies about these issues, and, and I'm going like, to you know, change people's minds by watching my films. And I I sort of lost hope in video in, mm. in film and it wasn't, and, what, and, and what this is no, it was, how did that happen? I mean, did it was, it was something specific happen that made you, it was a series of things. I, I said, I'm going to go work at MTV. You know, who has, who has influence on, on youth MTV at the time. So this was before YouTube. This was before <laughs> imagine mm -hmm. a world before YouTube. Um, so MTV was still very popular among young people. I, I became a producer um, at YouTube. Uh, at YouTube, at I became YouTube. a producer at um, MTV. MTV, and I uh, I said, okay, I'm gonna work my way up into a position where I can start pitching ideas about shows that I'd like to see air. And maybe instead of the show being about, you know, just a bunch of spoiled 16-year-olds who are getting everything they want for their birthday, which was a show that I worked on, it could be a uh -huh. bunch of very exciting and attractive young people who by day are activists and by night are, you know, nightlife people who are partiers. So so there's this balance there. They're doing amazing things to change the world by day, but they're also, you know, they're also indulgent. And I think that I thought that that would really work. And I figured out after years of trying that there was just no way anything like that could no. ever air. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, no, sweet 16. They, Come on, stay focused. When, when people yeah. look at the television and they see the shows on air, there is a reason why those shows are there. And it's because the advertisers allowed them to be mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a sense, the, you know, these advertisers are the the fathers of all of these shows that they chose not to kill. And, um, <laughs> and that was a show that would never be aired. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe I could have gotten it on a small independent network or, you know, something like Al Gore's current TV, they would play a few of my mm -hmm. videos, but when it came to really reaching the masses, it would never, never happen. Mm -hmm. So I had to shift focus and say, okay, what is another medium that is incredibly influential, that forms identity, that forms um, 
forms people's ideas about the world and about who they are. And, and I found that the fashion industry was that, mm-hmm. if not more influential than, than media. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what's interesting is that you had this almost like emboldened sense that you wanted to influence people. Like you felt like you had that in you, you had that capacity. You I were figured, looking for the right vehicle to do it, but that shows like a very kind of, on, on some level, like a very determined person. I have always been stubborn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my my parents always said I should have been a lawyer because I'm I I will argue to the death <laughs> if I think mm-hmm. I'm right. Um, but no, I I I'm insistent and I'm stubborn and I'm not afraid to be that way. Especially if if what I believe has been well researched and, but I'm also open to being wrong and I think that that's important too. Um, but with this, I just said you know, there's no reason why I can't be a the person who makes this happen. Mm -hmm. So I tried and I failed and then I shifted focus to a different industry and I, I knew nothing about fashion in 2008. If you had met me in Mm -hmm. 2007, uh, you know, you'd be looking at a totally different individual. I knew nothing about fashion. I didn't care about fashion. I just thought I wasn't even participating in it. I, you know, who cares? It wasn't that long ago. No. So within a matter of, of, of a few years, I, I ended up, having, uh, (laughs) accomplishing the idea that I'm an expert in this Mm -hmm. field. And it, and it came because I started writing about it and I started researching it. And I, you know, I started the blog, the discerning brood and, um, started, when did that start? In 2008. Yeah. Uh And then, you know, I ended up teaching at Parsons, which is one of the top design schools in the world. Yeah, to go for like literally in Three six years. years to go from somebody <laughs> who didn't care or know anything about fashion to being a professor. <laughs> That's crazy. That's I, awesome. What I found was that fashion fascinated me in the same ways and it crossed over into a lot of areas that I was already interested mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. That the only difference was that the application it still touched on all of these very interesting sociological and psychological and environmental Mm -hmm. and ethical issues. But instead of it being about things we're putting inside of us or, you know, actions that were happening out in the world, it was about the, you know, the production of clothing and the wearing of clothing. And it it becomes the human body is such an interesting site for studying how culture manifests. And, I, I, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm -hmm. I immediately just became enthralled with how complex, uh, the fashion discourse is, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, how it's looked at as this very silly thing by most people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, what was the switch that got flicked that took you from somebody who is, you know, blogging about it? covering it or discussing these issues into actually being an entrepreneur who's launching, you know, his own line and and stepping into that aspect of, you know, production manufacturing. Right. Well, I wouldn't have been able to do it without partners. I, I was writing about menswear, writing about the things that I would like to see that didn't exist on the discerning brute. I, I have a, you know, I have a sense of the type of shoes I wanted to wear and the type of suits I would like to wear. Then like, why and like, why isn't anybody fi- making yeah, that? Yeah, I couldn't find, I couldn't find anything, you know, yeah. at the time there was a few brands and uh, they were okay. Um, but then I approached Novakas, which is owned by the, the sisters that own Mushu's. Mm-hmm. And so that's their in-house brand. And I approached them and I said, would you like to collaborate? I would love to design shoes and we can utilize your 
production setup and you know and they agreed and we had many long meetings about the kind of shoes we wanted to make and how they would be higher end and we would upgrade the materials and upgrade the design and um and if it wasn't for them i'd never would have gotten started making fashion Mm. so that collaboration is still going on today all of the shoes that i make the shoes and boots that i make are in collaboration with them and it just yeah that support system was was incredible um and then so it started with shoes it started with shoes it started with uh so that was in brave gentleman that was going to be product number one right and then i mean initially i wanted to see if i could make a vegan suit because there were no high-end vegan suits that were both. That's a weird thing to say for somebody, you know, maybe who's listening, who who's thinking, well, well, how is it, you know, is how is green? how is a suit not vegan? You know, like what's <laughs> it's made you know, out of kale? Is there bacon in your suit? Like, what do you mean a vegan suit? Well, I mean if vegan I suit that. in the sense that the materials that are used to make the suit haven't been made with animal products. Mm-hmm. So, even if you buy a cotton suit or a linen suit, chances are the interlinings, the materials you don't see, the material that sits between the lining and the outer shell fabric, um, traditionally in, in high-end menswear, it's horsehair. And horsehair, is, it's a horsehair canvas, and it pr- provides um, a structured look to the suit so it doesn't wrinkle, it doesn't sag, it, you know, it sort of shapes to your body in the right way. I, had no, I didn't know that. And uh, there are replacements for it that are considered cheaper. There's synthetic, but usually it has wool in it. Um, things like collar backing, things like buttons made from horn. Uh, I mean, the menswear world is nothing but animal products. Mm. So when I say a vegan suit, I mean a suit that is not using animal products. Right. But yes. also, I consider you know cruelty-free vegan to not also include harming people. So not made in a sweatshop. Yes, you can go to H&M and you can buy a $90 three-piece suit. But chances are it was made somewhere like Cambodia and the people making it did not get paid fairly. Um, however, in order to to accomplish this goal, I uh, I just had to put in a lot of time of researching textiles Mm -hmm. and i finally found the right materials and then i started working with a factory in italy and a designer this italian designer who helped me come up with the first suit john bartlett actually i remember walking into his store in the west village and saying i want to make a blazer and i don't know how can Mm -hmm. you explain to me how you would do it and his the conversation (laughs) i had with him that was one of the first uh you know times I tried to wrap my head around how, how does fashion arrive in the stores? How is it coordinated? Mm-hmm. How do all these designers know how to use the same colors in the same season? And where, you know, where is this authority? Where is the divine mind? The <laughs> yes. divine yeah. fashion mind? Yes, in Paris. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the forecasters. Um, so, yeah, I started trying to do that. What did, jo- what did John say to you? <laughs> That's why I'm doing T-shirts he, now. No, he, um, <laughs> he, was, very, he was very respectful, and so he didn't great. laugh at me, and he didn't ridicule me, and he said, well, you know, I'm happy to help you, and this is, this is how mm-hmm. I've done it, and, and I wouldn't have been able to do it if it wasn't for him. Isn't mm-hmm. that amazing? Yeah, and I think the amount of help that I got from people who believed in what I was doing or what I wanted to do was, was immense and essential. And, um, so then I started doing outer, I started doing ready to wear. Um, I've recently started, uh, doing more, more outerwear. Um, it's expensive making 
ethical fashion is not cheap and you don't mm. make you don't make a lot of money back on it and one of the biggest complaints i get from customers and from from fans and readers is why is your stuff so expensive right and i say i wish i could sell right. you a 50 dollar pair of shoes that would require cheap toxic materials cheap labor um, it would require all the things that I am against. And the whole reason I'm in the fashion world is to change those things, not mm-hmm. to create cheap fashion. Mm-hmm. So it's, and ultimately over time, if you can build, you know, a significant customer base that's loyal and other designers start to do the same, then you'll be able to get economies of scale through volume. Yes. Right. But you're a pioneer, <clears throat> you know, you're out there trying to do this before, those sort of mass chains of production exist. Well, I think it comes from also re-education. It's like we have to start talking about these things and what are things that we can do as, you know, vegans or people that want, you know, to support the planet and want to not have a heavy footprint, you know, here in our lives. What can we do? And I think, you know, that was my experience when I entered the fashion business. I had so many people help me. And I think... The reason so many people are so willing to help you is because this gig is one of the toughest gigs. It's one of the toughest things you could ever do. So if they see somebody that has the fire that wants to do it, it's almost like an unspoken like fraternity or something. I had so many people share with me or I could have never done any of it. But I think that... You know, we have to start talking, broaden this discussion, you know, from what we, the food that we put on our plate to really looking at the impact globally of all of our decisions. And so we need to start offering, you know, an alternative perspective. So maybe one perspective would be, you know, start to shift your awareness and, and really invest in something like know that you're going to pay a little bit more for what you're providing, but know that it's okay. And that we're going to start to have like more of a long run view instead of, you know, this immediate gratification. Well, your consumer choices are as much political choices as anything else. You're making a statement, you're, you're voting, you're standing for something and, and, uh, and that has value and it's about being conscious of your environment. And, and I think what you were alluding to, not alluding to, you were actually saying straight up, like fashion is how you present yourself to the world. If there's anything that's going to you know, <clears throat> kind of create a statement about who you are and what you mean and what's important to you, what you're wearing is a pretty strong, you know, indicator. It is. It is. And, and again, it's totally undervalued. And I think that in the same way that the best argument for veganism is not a verbal argument, it's a plate of amazing vegan food. Mm-hmm. And right. the best, or an impeccably right. tailored suit, exactly. or a beautiful pair of shoes. Like that's how you're going to shift consumer choice. We live in a culture where aesthetics are they 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 reign supreme. And if mm-hmm. you and if what you're making happens to be ethical, but but it's superior, it's designed in a superior way with superior materials. That in itself is an argument for what you believe in, and that's a more effective argument than than trying to point out all the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And that I think that's a call to action for people to really take aesthetics seriously and to and to really understand. I think it's the um, the perceived correctness of beauty never overcomes the correctness of being being right Mm -hmm. and i think that um if we can make beauty correct in both ways then that is going to you can't argue with that um 
the the scary thing about fashion is that the industry is accelerating that the season the, the way the way that the the industry operates on a seasonal basis you know we we see changeover mm-hmm. and there's this idea that with each new season there's improvements that we're working towards something that there's some there's some telos some final purpose some end vision in sight <laughs> that yeah. we, you know the with, singularity <laughs> that we're like every time we have a new collection presented on the runway we're like one step closer to what but it, it's nothing it's nothing it's insane it's re- right. repetition and regurgitation it's manic it's it, well it's just it's fomenting demand out of nothing right yeah. i mean julie would tell these stories about how crazy her life was because you're constantly trying to feed this yes. beast and you just like it it just completely consumes and every gets, minute of your waking day yeah. and ultimately you know it just it was I mean, talk about sustainability. It wasn't sustainable for her life to continue it. Um, so how are you like managing all of that? <laughs> how are you doing? It's hard. I resist the fashion calendar, which is really, really problematic. The fashion calendar demands that in January I do market, in February I do fashion week, then I, you know, then I immediately get on the next season and prepare for market and prepare for fashion week. And this, it's a hamster wheel and you can't get off of it. And it gets faster and faster and more demanding as you go. And to fight the, to fight for slow fashion is very challenging. I I look at my Instagram feed of, of the fashion, um, the fashion people that I follow who are at Paris fashion week right now, the men at men's week. And I, I get this feeling of like, oh, I should be there. Why are like mm-hmm. I need to be represented? I need to be showing my stuff. How come I'm not there? And then I have to remind myself that that is not the life I want to live. I don't want to be running around the globe, mm-hmm. constantly ready for the you know the second you show something, it's out of date, and you have to move mm-hmm. on to the next thing. It's transient. It's nonstop, and that system is going to self destruct. It can't go on the way it's going much longer. When you look at a store like Gap or you know those th- the the seasons change maybe seven to eight times a year for them. Mm. It isn't two seasons anymore. For some of these big companies, every two weeks they're changing out new styles. You cannot compete wow. with that. You yeah, can't yeah. keep up with it. Right, yeah. and the most successful companies are the ones that have the designers or the owners that literally are recreating all the time. They never stop. Yeah. So you show your collection, but then they go home, and then the next day you're whipping out new a new style, a new yeah. style. Things just keep coming in the room. Like mm-hmm. you know, it's it's constant, constant. And it drives people. I mean. People kill themselves. There are designers who were driven to the point of suicide because of the industry. And it is not, it is not an easy, it's, it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a cutthroat industry. It is not a nice industry. People are not nice. And it's all about, you know, who can make the coolest stuff in the moment that can follow up with even cooler stuff in the next moment and mm-hmm. never, never, never take a break. And so what part does, have you researched customization and, and the part that that plays in making, making the garment unique, but like, let's say that you had like a base fabric or like, you know, a, a special, you know, a special future le- leather yeah. that's just constant. But then what about, what about the possibility of people customizing that, that would, that would make it different. And then you're not having to commit to the fabric because you're in trouble also even more because you're sourcing overseas. Yeah. So you have to be six to eight months ahead yeah. in order to get it through customs and all that. I think that, 
the aesthetic of Brave Gentleman is very classic menswear. It's, yes. n- it's stuff that doesn't mm-hmm. really change with trends. Right. You can kind of step outside of that cycle, right? Yeah. Because a great suit, you know, yeah, there are going to be subtle differences, you know, right. that are slowly going to morph over the years, but generally. And, and that's what a tailor is for. You get mm-hmm. a great suit and you adjust it if your body adjusts and mm-hmm. you have the lapels changed a little bit if you didn't like the style, but you invest in a good suit and it should last you a decade. Um, and with shoes and boots, the same thing. These are things that should last. It should mm-hmm. be investment pieces and they should be, they should, defi- they should defy trends. You should never buy something that's trendy. And I think that that's part of the mentality. The problem is if you even look a hundred years ago, people owned two or three outfits right. and they would rotate them and that was it. Mm-hmm. Right. And now people don't know what to do with the amount of stuff that they have. Right, right, right. And, and, and all these clothes are overflowing and it's just, it's nuts. So Brave Gentlemen, we're really trying to provide classic styles. We, we re-release the same styles every season with maybe a different material or uh, maybe we've upgraded and updated the, the way that it's made mm-hmm. and improved it. Um, that's the goal for me is I would love to have one coll- an annual collection, one collection a year, I would love for it to be able to, you know, accommodate both seasons and and then just let it let it sort of Wouldn't become. Wouldn't that be divine? <laughs> right. And yeah. then people, you know, the idea of customizing, I think, is up to the individual who buys it to style it. If you're, sure. if you're making classics, it's about how you wear it. Sure. It's about who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's not about, you know, getting a shirt with a specific graphic on it or something. It's about having these very sort of standard things that fit well, that look good on you. And they, accomp- they, uh, uh, um, they, what is the word I'm looking accommodate for? Accommodate your <laughs> other. Yes. They accommodate choices. like you as an individual right. and make you look good. Not, not you want to wear the clothes. You don't want the clothes to wear you. They accent you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't accent them. I want to talk about, masculinity what's that yeah the discerning fruit <laughs> i know no you would you talked earlier about um you sort of had this punk rock ethos as a kid and then we talked about kind of the the transitory um aspect of maybe today's youth with respect to how clothes inform identity mm-hmm. and you know it's just not it's not punk rock anymore to wear a leather jacket it's meaningless yeah right like a lot of these tropes to use a word mm-hmm. you used earlier um, really don't carry the same kind of gravitas that they once did. And and so, you know, in some respects, maybe clothes have been, you know, sort of deprived of that power that they once had in certain eras because there was less, there was there was more permanence in that identity that I think you adopted, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and how, how does this kind of inform now where we're at, like in terms of what it means to be an iconoclast or what does it really mean to be punk rock? And, and I think that, you know, where you stand and, you know, disabuse me of this idea if I'm stating it incorrectly, but you know, what's more punk rock, like what's more hardcore than taking a stance against a giant industry um, for, you know, a higher ethical uh, perspective on things. I mean, that's a ballsy thing to do. It's a courageous thing to do. It's not a popular thing to do. Um, it requires a you know a backbone and a sense of self and everything that you know punk is about. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's my, true. My inner know? fourteen year old would be. Thrilled yeah, I mean, like whether that. you're John Joseph, you know, <laughs> ranting about GMOs or you know whatever it is, like there's a there's a very kind of like you know uh, intentional um, and 
there's a there's a very intentional conviction about a point of view that that contravenes you know popular culture that I think is you know at times unpleasant for other people because it challenges them but yeah. and that's really what punk is about at its at its true core right it, it's a it's an interesting ideology to uh to to resist to try to bring mm-hmm. about change to to you know fight the system essentially and i think that those ideologies are very tied into hardcore and punk rock music and the bands that i grew up listening to were empowering in that mm-hmm. sense i would i would listen to bands who you know would tell me that i can change the world i can i can make these decisions and and not only can i do it but it's cool and it's and it's admirable to do those things to be complacent to be apathetic these are not these are not things to aspire to but we have we have industry working very hard to get kids to believe that being apathetic is cool not giving a shit is is the new that's the new rebellious thing mm-hmm. to do that to rebel against a perceived culture of do-gooders is the real rebel to to not 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 care and that's easy you know i think that yeah it's lazy too yeah it's lazy and it's easy and it's the path of least resistance to power when when we uh, when i talk about i do a presentation called fashion and animals and i talk about the aesthetic lure of of fictitious evil and how villains have such a lure because in in depictions of evil in hollywood um, you know, we have characters that are shadowy and sexy and dangerous. And, um, and this is how evil is perceived by mainstream America, at least that it's this very attractive thing. You know, when you look at vampires, when you look at, um, most villains in film are, are, there's something, you know, there's something desirable, of course, dangerous and sexy. They're sexualized. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the lure of that, of that fictitious evil is much more attractive to people than the lure of a fictitious, a fictitious heroism. That heroism is looked at as, you know, it's it's a lot of work to be a hero. You have to have values and consistency and knowledge, and these things are not something that you just come across. To be to be a villain is easy. You can be totally nuts. You can be bonkers and still have power. You don't have to justify anything you're doing. Mm-hmm. Look at someone like Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians. She was, you know, out of her mind, but powerful. Mm-hmm. And now she's become this icon celebrated in the fashion world that she's no longer a villain. She's this fabulous, eccentric, you know, fashionista. And um, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> being a hero is, is, is hard. It's a lot of work. So if I want to have power and I don't want to put in the work, then I'm going to be a villain. If I want mm-hmm. to have power and I have the patience and the <laughs> and the discipline to do work, yeah. then you can be a hero, and that's sort of the the perception. And it's also the perception that it's boring to be a do gooder, like we said before. But in reality, really bringing about change, really being being somebody who is changing the world and challenging the status quo, it is visionary and intoxicating and and beautiful. And think I think that that is. Uh, underappreciated by um, by a lot of people who don't who haven't had a glimpse of that. There is so much health information out there; it can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert Simon Hill. 
and host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. How does that inform your idea of masculinity? I mean, you know, both of your entities, you know, discerning brute and brave gentleman, and like these conjure up, you know, and sort of uh, make you ponder and and consider what your idea of what it is to you know to actually be a man. And yeah. What does that mean in modern society? Well, I I acknowledge that we live in a male dominated culture. We live in a patriarchy. We we value patrilineage over matrilineage and all of our religious heritage and all of our cultural heritage. And um, we live in a culture where men still, you know, have power over everyone else, over children, over women, over, you know, over people that are considered others, over animals. So um, there's power in, in masculinity. And I think that a lot of men are afraid of being of showcasing compassion or showcasing empathy because it compromises their masculine identity that we've been told that these, these behaviors, these, um, these characteristics of empathy are, are relegated to the, to the realm of the feminine. And if you are an empathetic person, if you are a compassionate person, if you care, if you care about people, animals, the planet, you are compromising your masculinity. You're mm-hmm. compromising your ability to do what, it is believed that men need to do and men need to be able to, you know, bring home the bacon without caring about how that's done. And I think that, um, when you look at something like the stock market, it's this manifestation of, of, (laughs) of masculinity in this very mainstream way where there aren't indicators for well-being in the stock market. You can't measure that. So when something is not controllable, when something is not measurable, it can't be considered mainstream masculinity because that is the goal to control everything. Mm -hmm. So um, I like to play with the idea of what masculinity can be with the discerning brute and with brave gentleman, because I think that when you really look at what it takes to bring about change and to be a hero, that a lot of these qualities of have of needing strength and needing needing a backbone as you said and um and having discipline and these can be these can be seen as very masculine mm-hmm. qualities and that doesn't mean women can't also do it people who identify as women are certainly discerning brutes and brave gentlemen as well but i also realize that i'm not attempting to be a perfect example of what of what our culture should be i'm manipulating a concept and playing around with it yeah 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 yeah. it's powerful too because of course the great irony is that um 
is that uh, you know true masculinity uh, demands a sense of respect and responsibility in the relegation of the power that comes with, you know, being a masculine force in our culture, right? And so what does that mean? That means that, you know, somebody who is truly, truly, uh, truly masculine understands that that benevolence is just as important as the exercise of that power, whether it's to oppress or to uplift. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you watch... If you you know sort of if you watch Gladiator, right? Like he's very benevolent in his in his sort of exercise of the limited power that he has throughout that movie. Like right. you see, and and he's a hero, right? He's mm-hmm. taking the hard road, but but the truly masculine person is the person that really kind of understands that understands the complexity of that. Like a great leader, the great leaders throughout history that yeah. we look at were the ones that were the most compassionate. And I think that when you when you get down to those great leaders, it wasn't re- it isn't even necessarily masculinity that they're embodying. It's it's humanity that they're embodying. This idea that the mm-hmm. the masculine and the feminine can come together and can coexist in this idea of of what it means to be a human being. We all have masculine characteristics. We all have feminine characteristics, but we live in this culture that likes to put everything into a little box and define it and, and say, this is who you are and this is who you are. And, um, and that I think is very limiting and it's so limiting for men. Men are so scared of being, I remember being a young boy and paying so careful attention to, okay, I can't cross my legs this way. I can't hold my body this way. I can't, you know, look at my nails this, this way. You know, there's all these little behaviors (laughs) that we're trained to do to not be perceived as feminine. And, and I, I remember those fears of like, oh, I can't let, you know, I can't cross my, I can't cross my legs sitting like this. Um, and, uh, there are in the mainstream, the way that men are depicted, it, it's both insulting and limiting. So when you look at a commercial, how are, you know, how are, how are dads always depicted in commercials? Well, they're sort of, you know, very straight laced and buffoons, you know, they're like idiots. They, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't know how to cook. They don't know right. how to clean. Mom has to do everything, but they, you know, they put on the tie and they go to work and they make money. Right. And I think, <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, so untrue in so many cases. I know mm. so many wonderful fathers who know how to cook and clean and, you know, and their and the, the marriage or, you know, the relationship they have is much more of a partnership and uh, an equal partnership. And, um, and then, then you have this manifestation of masculinity in the mainstream where there are these four, these four characteristics that define men. And, um, I've, I've said this before, um, in a few other places and excuse my French, um, but they are, uh, ball, which is sports, Mm -hmm. uh, bitches, which is womanizing, um, beer, which is drinking and beef, which is meat eating. Mm -hmm. So if you are not womanizing and playing sports and eating meat and drinking beer, you are existing outside of the mainstream male identity within American culture, at least. And I think a lot of European culture as well. Although I think European men are, are allowed to be a little more feminine. They're, they're given. Oh, it's definitely different. Yeah. But in, in the sense of, you know, 
those four characteristics, I think those are sort of the underpinnings of masculine identity. And, and if you are somebody who doesn't like sports, or if you're somebody who isn't womanizing, you know, if you're, if you're with the guys and you see like a hot lady walk by and you don't like cat call her, then you're going to be questioned. How come you don't think that woman's hot? Are you gay? Right. Are you, are you, are you too feminine? And <laughs> wait, and, so balls, bitches, uh, beef. And what was the fourth one? Beer. Beer. Oh, beer. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Shit. I don't do any of that. <laughs> I can't check one box. <laughs> sports. Yeah. You, do, you do sports, right? But not, not ball sports. Not, not ball really. sports. Yeah, I yeah. do like very, un, very unmasculine. But I sports. think the type of sports you do would still impress the mainstream man. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So maybe one out Bench of three. Press. But like, yeah, 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 that's another B. But uh, yeah, I think that that um, right. And if you're not doing, if you're not doing even one, like if if you're doing three out of four, that's still problem. Yeah, you're okay. Well, but if you're, yeah, but still, like it's you know, it's it can be tough. It can know? be. It depends on which one. Especially if you're lacking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I suppose. <laughs> but um, but right, like yeah, if you're not if you're not traveling in that direction, you know, kind of on that program, then you're left to field, and and yeah. you, that's a problem. And I think there are a lot of men who you know, don't identify with, you know, a couple of those, those bees and they feel ostracized or they feel like they, they go and they kind of pretend to like yeah, it anyway because they want to be, you know, part of that. And so there's a lot of suffering that comes with that. Oh, absolutely. A lot of quiet, silent suffering. A lot of young boys go through a phase of development where they have to quiet those feelings that they have about, you know, I, I remember hearing a story of a friend who was, um, his, he went hunting with his father for the first time and, you know, his father, um, made him shoot the animal. And, and when he cried, he told him, be a man. And I think that that really sort of summarizes it is like being a man means not crying, means not empathizing and learn to shut that down, learn to close down your emotional, your emotional self, learn to quiet those feelings of guilt and those feelings of empathy because they're a hindrance to, to doing what needs to be done. And um, I'm reading a book right now actually called uh, Brutal. And it's really, really mm. good. I haven't finished it yet. It's, uh, I don't remember who it's, uh, Brian Luke. Brian Luke. It's, um, it's, called, Ma- it's called Manhood and the, the subtitle is Manhood and the Exploitation of Animals. Uh-huh. Um, and it really is insightful in the idea of what, of how, controlling and dominating animals is essential to our understanding of what masculinity is and hunting is a central role in masculinity the idea of of the sacrifice of sacrificing animals in order to in order to showcase um your abilities and and your manhood i feel like like hunting exists on one level as as sort of you know a last vestige of a rite of passage for young men in Mm -hmm. a culture in which we no longer really have those kinds of things to you know sort of bring a young man up into adulthood you know and i think if you look at most indigenous cultures or human cultures throughout history They've been marked with, you know, very pronounced rites of passage for young people to sort of, you know, kind of symbolize their their stepping into into manhood. And, yeah. be, and we don't have that, you know, and I think that that's problematic. You know, I think hunting represents an aspect of that for men. But I think the fact that we don't have some form of that um, creates sort of, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's fair to say gender confusion, but but at least like a, a lack of sort of 
appreciation or understanding or a simple guidebook or rule book for, you know, <laughs> what is to be expected or, you know, what, what, what qualifies as being, you know, a functional, responsible, masculine man in our culture. Yeah. And, and it, so we and rely on even, advertising and, you know, it's like <laughs> television commercials inform that. And is that even desirable? I mean, do we live in a, do we live in a post, are, are we moving towards a, 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 a society that is beyond these very stringent gender identities, this binary, this male. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally know many people who exist entirely outside of the gender binary and they are it's definitely w- not well adjusted. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, that's becoming definitely, you know, expanded. Yeah. And I think that even though I think I identify as a masculine man, even though I also am a gay man. And mm-hmm. I think that there are straight men who are more feminine than me. And I think that there are trans men who are more masculine than me. It's really interesting what has, what, what is happening with our ideas about gender in this culture and how tied they are to when you look at, when you look at our religions and our history. And um, I mean, if you look at something like in the middle ages, the way that men dressed so you know they were more decorated and more oh, flamboyant than women yeah. <laughs> and um and the the, the gender you know there was there's these fluctuations throughout history about how we embody the genders that we identify as um but right now the one that we just talked about i think is dominating this the mm-hmm. embracing the idea of being a predator of being right. um that that is a that is a, a masculine ideal, and really, I mean, spiritually and evolutionary, um, when we're coming into the embodiment of our true, you know, spiritual self, it's more of an androgynous expression because we both have male and female within us, and we both, it, whether you happen to be physical physically embodied as a male or a female, still within that. Um, when you become, you know, divinely balanced, you're expressing both feminine and masculine aspects really in an even way. Yeah. So it's, you know, different expressions are are necessary or relevant at different times. And it depends. But, Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, th- I agree with you. I think that as we continue to evolve, there's a lot more versions of the human being that is genderless. Um, and it really has, it doesn't really have anything to do with sexual preference. It just has to do with how they were made mm-hmm. and what is their expression as a human being. I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can I be a better, brave gentleman? <laughs> Buy a pair of his shoes. Yeah. For um, sure. <laughs> definitely. Well, I'm like, I'm already thinking like, where, where's the, where do I go and get fitted for this suit? You know, well, I gotta get, I gotta get one. I'm trying to do less. <laughs> custom-made suits and more yeah. ready-to-wear suits because it's really it's really hard doing is it direct to consumer stuff. i mean you don't are you are you showing in retail spaces i or? would like to sell in retail spaces so i can't i can't really um this is one of the problems with fashion is that if you want to sell in stores your price point has to be higher because you need to make room for yeah. the retailer to make money yeah, too and yeah, if you yeah. undercut them i have a i have an online store and if I'm selling my shoes for half the price that the retailer would, no one would right. carry it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because people would only, you know, 
they would feel I was undercutting them. So there is something called keystone markup, which, you know, a lot of products go through. And that is sometimes followed in fashion, sometimes not. I can't do it because if I were to do the standard markups, I would have $500 shoes. Mm -hmm. So I do sell my shoes cheaper than than they would be at a suggested retail price. But I do want to sell to, you know, I would love to be carried at Barney's. I would love to be seen as a brand that is on par with those other brands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now, the only designer that's really at that level doing those things, well, two of them, mostly Stella McCartney um, and somewhat uh, of um, Vivian Westwood, uh, they are the only two designers I really know of who invest in sustainable materials that don't Mm -hmm. use fur, Mm -hmm. that have some sense of, you know, what's going on with the livestock production and connection to fashion. And they have gigantic budgets and they're, they're doing huge revenue and they're just in a position to be able to do that at at scale. My parents were both public school teachers. Stella McCartney's father (laughs) is a beetle. So I had a little more challenge getting started. Um, not to say that she's not talented. I mean, she's amazing she's and she's an inspiration and yeah. she's one of my personal heroes yes, and I, I I love what she's done. But I'm just pointing out that a lot of people who make it in fashion mm-hmm. are able to because they have the support system, of course. Yeah, and you really do need that. I mean, you know, that definitely was, was my decision after slugging it out for six and a half years, hey. working 14-hour days. And then I just realized... You know, on my capital, personally funded, I could only yeah. I could only exist at a certain level. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, but you know, I think you know it's it's so amazing to meet you and hear you speak. You're you're so articulate and you're so aligned with your purpose. Thank you. And I think, um, I mean, I would love to be in one of your classes. And <laughs> yeah. I think you are you know you're a gift and you found your you found your groove and. I know you're going to influence and inspire a lot of young minds. And I think it's just, we just need to start offering just different perspectives. And all of us need to just, you know, do it a different way. Yeah. You know, just throw down and, and, and spend the extra money. You know, I'm, I've been looking at Stella McCartney shoes. I mean, how I usually am, I'm navigating it now because... Um, as I shop mostly in thrift stores and I try to use, you know, find if I wear leather, it's something that's vintage or that's been worn before. Um, but you know, I, I am an artist and I do believe in, you know, the part of being human is expressing yourself through your clothes. And I will, I would never exist where I didn't care about fashion. I just, it's not in my makeup. Um, and I'm more interested actually, as I progress in going into approaching fashion in a ceremonial, um, uh, sort of approach and really think about, you know, customizing certain aspects of your wardrobe that are very, very specific to the individual. Mm. And I think that all of us can do that by kind of breaking out our, our inner artisan and, you know, collaborating with artists in the neighborhood or something. Yeah. But, um, you know, definitely buying, you know, um, pieces from a designer like you who has taken all the time to resource and put so much care into this. Um, and I already sent your link to my sons because I have my our two sons who are 18 and 20 and then my nephew's 23. And they have been on the lookout for the last three months. They've been researching consciously and ethically uh-huh. created clothes. So they and they haven't bought a thing yet. You know, they're they're actually have not been that uh, involved in fashion. They've yeah. been just sort of wearing what was ever in their closet right. or what they buy at the thrift store. But they're musicians and they have an amazing band and they're going to be coming out with their first recording. Cool. And so, but their main thing is they're trying to research like who who's doing this in an ethical 
is in an ethical manner and they're yeah. all vegan. And That's so it's awesome. really cool. So That's I sent them your cool. link. And, and the music industry has been very supportive of Brave Gentleman, mm. actually. Oh, I, nice. have, I have um, uh, Jared Leto was wearing my boots in, the best. Uh, in cool. like a full wow. page spread in um, so cool. LA Confidential magazine. It's cool. Nice. And uh, is that what it's called? LA Confidential. Yeah, LA Confidential. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or, and there's Angelino. Angelino. The big kind of big format page magazine. Yeah, I think yeah. it was LA Confidential. Mm-hmm. So he was in like a full page spread wearing my boots. And, so cool. Um, and uh, Davey Havoc from AFI just got in mm. touch about, you know, I just sent him a bunch of stuff to wear on, on an interview. And I've gotten requests from Joaquin Phoenix and nice. Woody Harrelson. And it's been nice to have that support from Hollywood because when, when someone in Hollywood is seen in your stuff, it sort of validates it in the mainstream. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of work that still needs to be done. I'd love to open a store in New York. I'd love mm-hmm. to have a flagship mm-hmm. physical location for Brave Gentleman. But I can't do it alone. So if there's right. any no. uh, if there's any angel investors listening, any partners, <laughs> step forward. What Let about like a like Takes even a just doing a pop up store? I've done pop ups. Oh, you have? Yeah, yeah, I've done like temporary pop ups. It would be nice to have sort of a home base, a destination to, to be able to do, you know, to have my inventory to do shipping from, to have a curated space that is that is getting foot traffic in places that uh, are comparable. I, I would imagine it, you know, would have to be somewhere like Soho or the West mm-hmm. Village or mm-hmm. the East Village, somewhere where there's comparable menswear stores, because I don't want it to be just for vegans. Mm-hmm. I want it to be people who just see a great shoe in the window and come in and they want it. And then sure. the icing on the cake is that it's made ethically. And um, I, I really look forward to that day. I'm buying lottery tickets. Yeah, That's awesome. That's <laughs> great. It's gonna ha- it'll happen. It's it's gonna happen. Yeah, you've only been doing this a couple of years. Look how far you've come. <laughs> I know, but it's I'm an, like, you know, time's limited. You only have one life. <laughs> it's all happening. Yeah, and we to gotta do. get you to do some women stuff too. So. I get a lot. I'm, yeah. I'm planning on. I get a lot of requests yeah. from women, and a lot of women do buy who have bigger bigger feet do buy my smaller size shoes. But I want to release all of my designs in women's sizes because I think menswear for women is very very cool, popular right actually, now, yeah. and a lot of women love menswear. And yeah. if it just was you know, in their size, yeah. Yeah. that it would be great. Um, I, uh, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, awesome. we gotta we gotta close it down in a minute. But, oh, we, but didn't uh, even, we didn't even talk about CrossFit. I know. I was just gonna say I was, <laughs> that was, you read my mind because I was like, before oh. we close it down, I gotta know how the CrossFit's going because <laughs> I know you just you just PR'd your deadlift, right? Well, it wasn't a dead, no. I PR'd the snatch. Oh, the snatch. Okay. Um, and it's not what it sounds like. A lot of people sort of g- <laughs> giggle at that name. Don't giggle. Um, the snatch is, is an, an Olympic uh, lifting mm. technique where imagine that your your barbell with the weights are it's on the floor in front of your feet and um, somehow through uh, some magical actions it ends up over your head and you're in a squat and then you stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there, there's a lot of technique in between the part where it's on the floor and the part where it's over your head. Um, and I... I PR'd, which means I got a personal record of 135 pounds today for the snatch, which is, nice. it's hard to do heavy snatches. So, um, yeah, my deadlift is closer to in the, in the mid three hundreds approaching uh-huh. 400 range. Wow. Cool. Wow. But, and you've been doing CrossFit for a couple of years now. Yeah. Right? I've been doing it for a couple of years. What, what inspired that? Uh, honestly, it was the fact that everybody there was paleo and it was, it was like a noise. It's a bastion of paleo. <laughs> I was right? like, 
I was like, I could do that. Come on. I, I bet I could, you know, as a vegan, go in there and, like, prove to all these paleo people that I can compete on, you know, on a similar level. I'm not a pro. I'm not going to the CrossFit Games. Mm. But as a regular, you know, as a regular um, person that goes to CrossFit, I, I do... I do try to be in the top five usually for performance mm-hmm. for each each workout, and I and I've been mostly successful. So I think I may have been in first place today. Let me check. Oh wow! You can look <laughs> on your phone. Does I'm that going, create like a brain freeze for all the paleo people at your CrossFit gym, or are they like surprised? Cool? I mean, they're. <laughs> I wear some obnoxious vegan t-shirts uh-huh. for some people, you know, it's an eye roll for some people. They want to know like, wh- wh- how do you do this on, you know, eating nothing but lettuce? <laughs> right. like, well that's your first actually, problem it probably would be it would be hard if all you were doing <laughs> i know so, so. i had actually a coach one of the coaches approached me and she's like i have this new student in one of my classes and she's super skinny and she's always complaining that she's sore and i just found out that she's vegan like i know you're vegan what are you doing to maintain your body weight like how are you building mm-hmm. strength she didn't not just she, maintaining you put on like 25 pounds of muscle right? yeah i gained almost <laughs> i'm i'm close approaching like 25 30 pounds of muscle that i gained and i've been vegan for 17 years this is not you know muscle that i built while i was eating meat and then i suddenly became vegan mm-hmm. um i'm a long time vegan since you know since right after since the movie yeah <laughs> since <laughs> that horrible movie that i saw um oh so i was looking i was gonna look at the the P, <laughs> the pr board um here we go. So I'm going to see. It's called Whiteboard. I'll see if somebody beat me. I'm sure somebody did. Uh-huh. But if I'm in first place today, I mean, maybe the blizzard kept a few. Oh, there I am. Number one. Number yeah, one. Nice. All right. So wait, this is like Williamsburg CrossFit. Like what's your, what's the CrossFit? This is gym? CrossFit oh, Virtuosity. Dude. Look at it's that. So cool. Like it's a special app for it. <laughs> this is called Wattify. Uh-huh. It's the app where you, you put in all oh, of your right, scores right, right. and it keeps track. So that is so cool. it's not just about obsessing over what place you're in. It's about, <laughs> it's about um, tracking your progress, knowing what, what your one rep max is, knowing mm. what your five rep max is. And, but for me, I mean, it ended up, it started out as this competitive thing where I was like, I need to prove that a vegan can do this. And it also ended up becoming a great community. I am good friends with most of the people that I go to the gym with. They're so friendly. It's such a great group dynamic. It's slightly competitive, but mostly fun. And I recommend it to anyone. I think there's a lot of stigma associated with it where it's being perceived as this sort of almost militarized uh, mm-hmm. form of exercise and it's hyper aggressive and um but it's it's really fun and it's a it's the best workout i've ever had and in a short amount of time i can i can be in and out of the gym in one hour and have a good workout and for somebody that has a busy schedule i couldn't ask for uh, when i used to go to the gym i'd be like oh, i have to go to the gym and I'd do the same thing and mm-hmm. it'd be boring and i wouldn't see any progress in my body um but it's always with CrossFit. It's always different. It's like almost every hour of the day. I can go at twelve thirty if I have a break. I can go at eight thirty at night if that's the only free time I have. And um, I sound like I've been brainwashed. No, I know. I think you have. <laughs> you yeah. have like no, well, what's so cool is you have the community though. Yeah, yeah that's know? what I was going to say. What they've done. What they've done so marvelously is create real community around fitness. And yeah. regardless of your perspective or opinion on CrossFit, you know, and the particulars of the exercises. Yeah. That's the game changer you yeah. know what i mean to like it's different yeah you go to the gym whatever there's people there but they're not it's not a it's not exactly a you know 
mutually supportive community of people yeah. that like are cheering for you and all that kind of stuff. I'm about, I'm going to show you, I put it on Instagram because I like to be a little, you know, provide people with some motivation and inspiration about of the, uh, of the snatch. You can see uh-huh. what it looks like. Maybe I described it incorrectly, but here. Are you going to do it? Okay. There you go. So the video is playing. Uh-huh. There you go. <laughs> oh, oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> that looks that looks Good really job. impressive. And then you get to like throw the weight down. Uh-huh. You're like, I'm done. No, you get the <laughs> wristbands and the beard going on and the whole thing, right? That's very It's fun. You look like a 1920s brute-like. strong man, you know? <laughs> That's what I was for Halloween. Oh, you, you were? <laughs> I put on like a striped tank top <laughs> and I got like a big curly mustache and I part my hair in the middle. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Did you see the video that Rich posted uh, about the, the strongest man in the world? Oh, Patrick. You, Patrick you know Bubamian. Patrick, yeah. Did you yeah. see the video? No, I didn't need to see the Rich video. Rich was there. Uh, yeah, well, he was I'll show on stage when it happened. I was on stage in Toronto when he did that oh carry and I took a little GoPro video. That is yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Thank cool. you for I'll doing that. After, I'll show it to you afterwards. I want to yeah. see no, it. He's, yeah. great, he's, he's such a cool guy. That was so like, inspiring. Yeah. I interviewed him a long time ago, and he. What struck me was how friendly, super and friendly. warm. He was like yeah. such a such a nice guy. Well, when you talk about like sort of inverting, you know, definitions of masculinity. Yeah. I mean, like strongest guy in the. I mean, arguably one of the strongest people walking around the planet, and also one of the most gentle, kind, yes. friendly, you know, interesting people you're ever going to meet. The gentle giant. He Just is. a teddy bear. He's a he is a brave gentle man. He is Patrick, <laughs> yes. isn't he? And a discerning brute. <laughs> he I hope is. so. He is. He is. All right. Well, I'm going to leave you with one final thought, which brings it back to your your previous filmmaking aspirations. Yes. So has anybody made? I mean, we're in this golden age of documentaries. Yeah. Like, is, has anybody made a documentary that is kind of the um, forks over knives slash cowspiracy version of you know looking at the way the fashion industry works? And the environmental implications and the ethical implications. Not, and the, you know, sort of the... I mean, there has been films that have addressed specific issues, like skin trade addressed, you know, mm-hmm. fur. But nobody has made a film that really looks at the fashion industry under the umbrella of what it is and, and, and is addressing... There's a blog called Not Vogue. And not Vogue it doesn't, you know, it's one. It's a great blog. It it looks at fashion from its power structure, how criticizing the power structure, how it's this form of of identity control, of social control, essentially. Mm-hmm. When you look at the people who are in positions of power in the fashion industry, the editors, um, the real decision makers, the owners, these major brands, um, there's a lot of social control that's being uh, being, you know set out onto the world um but there's all these elements and that's one of the problems why no one has done the documentary about it is because it's so complicated Mm -hmm. so complex Mm -hmm. i'm currently working on a book called fashion and animals Mm. and it touches on a lot of these issues um i i believe that the fashion industry is needs to be approached from an intersectional standpoint and for people who don't know what intersectional means, it was um, it's a way of looking at things that has sort of a, a feminist um, uh, underpinning to it. Um, it's it, it makes the argument that all oppressions are interconnected. So if mm. there's a, when we look at the fashion industry, it's it's ripe for in, in, uh, um, <laughs> an intersectional um, analysis because it affects 
everyone and everything. Yeah, and you can't look at it without also bringing yeah. into impact, like, you know, the socioeconomic conditions of wherever these right. workers live and, you know, their access to other things that they need in their life. Yeah, like you, can't web. Look at, you can't address the issue with the sweatshop without also addressing the issue of the pollution, without also addressing the issue of the animal that was, mm-hmm. you know, killed for to be tanned, which caused the pollution, which is affecting the people who are in the tannery. You know, it's these, op- these oppressions uh, are intrinsically connected and we have to approach it that way we can't say let's address this one problem Mm -hmm. let's say you can't be reductionist yeah so um that's cool so how far along are you in the book i I released a preview to the book which was about 50 pages uh at an event at the alexander gray associates gallery in new york city um uh, back in september (laughs) and since then i've had no free time i'm working on it i hope my uh I hope my uh, book agent isn't listening to this, <laughs> but I'm working on it. I promise. I'm trying to have. Do you it have done. a publisher already, or is that all lined up? And- um, I don't yet have a publisher, but I do have an agent who mm-hmm. is uh, who has very good relationships with publishers, and I just have to finish the damn book. All right. Well, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. hold you publicly to doing that. I need to like make a promise so that I actually have to live up to it. Yeah, and I think where Rich is going is that. Uh, we also want you to promise that you're going to make that documentary. I would love to make the movie based on the book. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I envision, I mean, as a filmmaker, as a person who works, you know, I just last week I was editing commercials for, in order to fund my fashion line. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a day job in order to, in order to fund design. the fashion yeah. design. So glamorous. Yeah. So, um, we have a sustainability problem. Here <laughs> right. <to talk> about. <laughs> People are like, do you sleep? And, I do a little bit. Um, but yeah, I can envision what the film would look like and how it would be. And, and But the problem with film is that you got to get people to see it. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world that's inundated with media. How do you get the right people and enough people to sit down and look at something? Make look, a great film. Yeah, make a great film. I mean, look at The Cove. It won an Academy Award and the, the, the dolphin slaughter is the happening still, as we speak. still, still happening. still going on. Yeah, yeah, as we speak, the animals are being, are being slaughtered in Japan. And not to say it didn't bring about a huge awareness. I mean, it did. It brought about so much awareness, and there's so many more activists focused on it. But has it resolved the problem yet? No. And, and I think that, that that really sort of uh, affected me very deeply to, to know that a film, an Academy Award-winning documentary is not going to like have immense and, and, and swift impact on stopping something terrible. Yeah, but then you also have other cases like, you know, the documentary, was it Blackfish? Black you know, the... That's true. Sh- you know, the orca whale, that had a huge impact. Yeah. And then, you know... And look at how Forks Over Knives have changed the habits mm-hmm. of millions of people. Very, so. very true. And very soon to change many people, Cowspiracy. Yeah, have you yeah, seen Cowspiracy I did. Yeah. Cowspiracy yeah. is uh-huh. fantastic. And did you see Go- The Ghosts in Our Machine? No. I haven't seen that. Beautiful film. You have to see that. Okay. Um, it's It's probably... I loved I loved the way the production value. I loved how it looked, how it was shot, and I also loved it did a very interesting thing where it didn't make you the the viewer accountable. Uh-huh. It it was about this documentary photographer who went and shot animals in these various situations. She went undercover on a fur farm and she went documenting animals, sorry, in all of these different um scenarios and it became about her and her struggle and her story so you could you could watch it without feeling like judged. You're being accused yeah. of something, right? And I think that that was a really brilliant 
uh, technique. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Obviously, um, the subject and the filmmaker is a photographer, so I wouldn't expect anything less. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool, man. Well, thanks for talking to us. Sure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks was, for being with a, us in the uh, blizzard. <laughs> no, that was a pleasure. And the sun an has honor. gone down. And, uh, you're, you're inspiring, and you need to keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate what you do. I have a huge amount of respect for the mission that you're on. And you know, Thank if this you. podcast is about anything, it's about you know, how do you better access and express that more authentic aspect of who you are. And I see somebody who is very true to that. And... Uh, it was great to sit down with you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cool. So if you're digging on Joshua and you want to connect with him, go to uh, bravegentleman.com and thediscerningbrute.com, which is more of the blog. Yeah. Uh, and you're on all the social media. Yeah, you can Joshua find me on Catcher. Instagram at, at dis, the discerning brute. Twitter mm-hmm. is discerningbrute, and on, I'm, I'm on Facebook as well. So mm-hmm. say hi. There you go. All right, cool, man. <laughs> Thanks. Peace. Namaste. All right, we did it. Well, that should give you more than a few things to think about next time you go to the mall, right? I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, In fact, I'm going to see Joshua today. I'm going to check out his line, and uh, I think I'm going to pick up a few of his items. Pretty excited about that. Uh, send me your questions for future Q&A podcasts. And to find all the information, education, products, tools, resources, and inspiration you need to take your health, wellness, fitness, and self-actualization to the next level, go to ritual.com, peruse our nutrition products, our education products, and yes, our garments, all made with 100% organic cotton, I might add. Uh, if you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on iTunes, and you can pick up the free app to listen to episodes older than the most recent 50 that you see on iTunes. Thanks for supporting the show. Keep telling your friends. Keep using the Amazon banner ad. Keep sharing it on social media. Keep Instagramming it. I love that. Don't forget to tag me at Rich Roll. Okay, you guys. See you next week. Peace. Plants. (laughs) Plants.